Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. So today I'm joined by Dr. Christine Bao, an assistant professor in the University of Colorado's Anschutz Center for Bioethics and Humanities. Christine's work focuses on acute and chronic health implications of repetitive brain injury from sport and the resultant individual, institutional, policy, and ethical considerations. She was named a Forbes 30 under 30 in sports, and she also studies risk, decision-making, and morality in sports. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You have such an interesting research portfolio. There are so many different ways we can go with this, but tell us a little bit how this portfolio evolved. Sure. Um, You know, it really began with my first job out of college. I was working at the Boston University Center uh, for the study of chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, where, you know, a lot of the uh, modern work around this disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, um, you know, a neuropathologic disease that comes from repetitive head impacts originated. And it was all very kind of lucky and by circumstance that I ended up there. Um, But it got me thinking a lot about uh, brain injury from sport. It got me thinking even uh, more broadly about kind of the public health or policy implications uh, of all of the uh, youth, adolescent, collegiate, and professional athletes in the United States. And so uh, I've kind of taken it a bunch of directions from there, um, thinking about this from the policy angle, thinking about it from the epidemiologic side, uh, and just trying to kind of contextualize whose um, roles and responsibilities it is to care for, protect, and ensure the safety of athletes across all levels. And so my work uh, in some ways is a little bit scattered. I uh, touch upon a lot of different issues, but all kind of focused on, you know, the health and well-being of athletes. That's fascinating. And and when you went to, to BU, you, did you know that that's what you were going to be doing? Or was it just, hey, I'm just sort of interested in this topic and let me see if I like it? Uh, I ended up at BU because um, uh, I had a crisis of conscience and I didn't know what I wanted to do out of college. I thought I was going to go to law school. Uh, and then I changed my mind and um, had to find a job in April of my senior year of college. <laughs> Um, So it really was very kind of happenstance. And I was a research coordinator there. So so nothing fancy, you know, um, just working with a really strong interdisciplinary team of scientists who were at the forefront of, like I said, the kind of modern work on this issue, clinically, neuropathologically, etc. And so from there, I just got inspired both by the scientists, but also by my interactions with current and former um, National Football League players, military veterans, other professional or uh, elite athletes who would come into my office as part of our research work and have these, you know, sometimes devastating conversations about, you know, what they were experiencing in their day to day and what they were associating with being as a result of the head impacts that they had sustained, you know, earlier in their lives. This is such a deep conversation. I, you know, in preparing for, for our call today, I was, as I usually do, scrolling through Twitter, which is how you and I met. And I saw Chris Nowitzki's um, retweet of a moment in the Michigan-Ohio State men's basketball game. I don't know if you saw this, but two athletes, one from each team, collided, but not directly, but just sort of 
brushed heads off. And, you know, the guy, the guys kind of stood up and shook their heads and the announcers say, oh, he's just shaking off the cobwebs. And you can see that the, the one player is walking down the court trying to shoot the free throws and he's shaking his head. He really cannot get his head clear. And one of the things that concerns everybody is when is the right time to pull somebody and what is the, what is the cultural phenomenon of pulling somebody for an injury that you can't easily see? So how does that, that moral uh, dilemma really of, of when do we pull an athlete for his or her safety and the right, the right thing to do, how does that work in your research? Yeah, we could spend the whole 30 minutes talking about just this question, I think, uh, although I, I hope we don't. There's plenty of other, other ways we can go, but you know, there's a lot of layers here. So uh, first and foremost, if it was visible to people on TV, right, it was probably visible uh, you know, to the folks on the sidelines, including those who are charged with you know, serving as healthcare professionals, athletic trainers or team physicians for those uh, collegiate athletes. And I think, um, you know, the NCAA uh, gets a lot of criticism, but they have done some real work to try to ensure that there are um, ways that these healthcare professionals are protected in their decision making capabilities in order to not have the athlete or the healthcare professional face interpersonal uh, athletic or career repercussions for making that hard uh, game time decision to say like, we need to pull this kid, we need to evaluate him or her and make sure that they are safe. Um, and that if they have indeed suffered a concussion, I did not see the video, that we can you know, uh, begin them on the road to recovery. So I think that there are some policy pieces here. Um, you know, they're, they're supposed to be doing that work of pulling it out, pulling the um, you know, suspected injury, injured athlete out. Um, but there's a lot of interpersonal stuff going on too. I'm sure the athlete, you know, knew something was wrong, but there's a lot of incentives in that environment, um, both from within the athlete who has probably worked, you know, his or her whole life to get to this point of playing, uh, you know, in a collegiate basketball game, um, you know, worried about their athletic like uh, prowess at that moment, worried about maybe losing their spot on the team, right? We've done a lot of work to, look at the athlete side incentives or disincentives for um, making that report themselves. And it's hard. We've found um, in a number of cases, over half of the um, suspected concussions that athletes face, they don't report um, yeah. for reasons like I just described. So I think we need to think carefully about the roles of institutions and um, especially healthcare professionals and in taking that responsibility off of the athlete as much as we can because of the incentive structure that, you know, may prevent them from coming forward in some cases. I absolutely agree with you. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, and it would just, I think, occurred in 2019 or 2020, but finally, I think the NCAA mandated that the athletic trainer or, and or the team doctor has final say over a return to play. Why did it take so long, do you think, to get to that point? You know, uh, I'm not sure why, why it took so long for them to have that piece of policy in place. Unfortunately, you know, we, we both know this, just because you wrote down a policy doesn't mean that things change automatically, right? So even in light of that policy recently coming into place, there's been both research um, uh, 
uh, independent research as well as a, a survey from within the National Athletic Training uh, Association itself that, that has found that there's still these pressures on the healthcare providers from coaches or athletes or both to kind of adjust their medical decision making, right? And it's, it's a tough environment. In the same way that coaches um, face repercussions if they lose too many games for their careers, um, there have been, you know, there's evidence that healthcare providers can face career repercussions even though they shouldn't if they make these kinds of decisions that are in the athlete's best interests. So it's it's a it's a tricky space. It's one that I'm really interested in and working on actively um, because I do think that there's there's some real work to do in ensuring that independent medical decision-making for the collegiate um, athletic training and sports medicine staffs. I agree with you. A couple of years ago, I had a great good fortune of going to see my Philadelphia Eagles play in the Super Bowl in Minneapolis. And, um, and they won, I have to point that out. But um, one of the things that I got to go to before the game was held was something called the first and future which is basically a venture capital type of event where the NFL put out some RFPs saying, we're looking for people to help us with technology in certain areas. And that year, well, the focus was on concussions. And then the focus from there, the, the, it was like a shark tank. In other words, they had a, di a, diff a group of different uh, uh, inventors come forward with their ideas. And then uh, the winner you know, became the, the next shark tank person or whatever. But the focus that year was on helmet technology, that the NFL is trying to spend a lot of money on trying to invest in better helmets. First, what do you think about that? And second, does that then alleviate them from the problem that we just discussed? Yeah, you know, I think that the concussion problem, if you want to call it that, and, and you know, I think concussion is part of it, these repetitive head impacts, whether they result in acute symptoms of concussion also seem like they may have some of these longer term implications. You know, it, it's a, it's a multi-pronged problem that will probably require a multi-pronged solution. Okay. So first, I think focusing strictly on concussion um, may miss the boat uh, in the ways that I just described. It seems like, again, just you know, science is constantly evolving, but the current evidence seems like it may not just be those acute concussions, those mm -hmm. symptomatic head hits that occur, but rather the repetitive um, hitting of the head, uh, moving of the brain within the skull that can then lead to these later life consequences. And the later life consequences, if we're being pretty honest, have been what has spurred a lot of the um, attention towards concussion and these innovations that we're moving at. Right. With respect to the kind of helmet technology piece, um, you said, what do I think? I think it's not surprising that the NFL wants, you know, to try to alleviate the problem with better helmets. That would be, um, were it to work, a very easy solution. Um, but I don't know that physics is on their side. Um, you know, do I think that, that we might be able to make some incremental progress in terms of, um, you know, reducing the, we can call it like cumulative G-force or like what is actually experienced in the brain? Uh, I imagine that there are some very smart, you know, um, biomedical engineers who could, who could make some advances there, but is that going to solve the problem? I'm going to say no, um, because you know, it, it's just strictly a problem of physics. You're taking very large people moving, you know, pretty quickly and then stopping pretty rapidly and the forces have to go somewhere. And, you know, the helmet helps disperse the force across the full skull 
it was originated um, back when the problems in football were things much more like cracked skulls or brain bleed, ble brain bleeds, hematomas, right? So it shifted the problem from those very big, bad um, brain type injuries that occur with uh, forces that happen over a very small area to dispersing that force over a larger area, but the brain's still moving uh, within the skull. And I don't know that that's ever going to be a problem that we can solve just with technology. So taking away the helmet, let's take away the sport that doesn't use a helmet. You can think of soccer, you can think of our example of basketball and even other sports where, you know, things happen. What, uh, what awareness should, especially people who are senior leaders in higher education, people who want to oversee athletics someday, uh, what do they need to understand about the healthcare coverage that athletes should have and maybe what the institutional policy should be on protecting the health and safety of that athlete? Yeah, you know, I think you bring up a lot of good points here. Let me try to work through them um, because there's some layers to this question. So one, I do think that there's something to be said about having, you know, from the top down, a real health and safety focus within an institution. We've seen with the case study of concussion, but I'm sure it applies to other injuries, that if important stakeholders like coaches, uh, like sports medicine um, directors, athletic trainers come forward and are vocal about having a pro-safety stance, it makes it a lot easier for athletes to seek care when they need it. Um, and so I think that that kind of culture of safety is a really important piece. It's hard to, you know, tell people to have a culture of safety, right? What does that mean? I think you have to actually believe it in order for it to come off as genuine. But, you know, I think there is that piece. A second piece that you mentioned was the idea of kind of medical coverage. And some of my recent work uh, has focused on just what that looks like across, in this case, specifically NCAA uh, institutions. And we found very wide variation uh, in the number and types of healthcare providers that are available to athletes across these institutions. Interesting. So for example, if we use the athletic trainer, um, in some cases, you know, the athletic trainer has you know, about 25 athletes to care for on average, a pretty small number if we're just doing kind of strict division at the institutional level. Right. In other cases, it's like 500 yeah. athletes, right? So there's a very stark difference there. And even the most well-meaning clinician would not be able to provide the same level of care in those two contexts, right? So, um, you know, at, at kind of a very base level, there is some need for there to be a standard around the minimum acceptable uh, level of care um, available to these athletes. And we've found in these same studies that, you know, that ratio of athletic trainers to athletes, as well as features about uh, what kinds of clinicians are available is associated with rates and kinds of injuries that the athletes at those schools experience. So when you have lesser medical coverage, you have more injuries occurring um, in these schools athletes. So you know, it is really a health and safety issue. And so I, it's something, again, that I continue to, to work on, to advocate for, to look into um, and uh, to research because it seems like a, a sort of a fundamental responsibility of these institutions who are fielding uh, the teams that the athletes participate on. 
I really agree with you on that. And I think a lot of actually about high school athletes that come into the college pipeline who don't have nearly the resources or the, or the structures, or they're playing a lot of club sports that are going back and forth, you know, playing year round. How many head injuries do they not even know that they've had, you know, coming into college? And then the first time something happens, the college folks are surprised because they've had this, you know, really outlandish reaction their brain has because they've had a series of smaller and smaller hits. It's, it seems like it's a problem at all levels of sports, not just collegiate. Absolutely. And uh, there have been some other folks who've done excellent work trying to kind of map um, the, the availability of sports medicine providers in high schools or in club sports contexts. And, um, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know the punchline is it's not great um, that there are a very significant number of high school and youth athletes who participate in these activities without that safeguard of having a, a healthcare provider who's um, charged with ensuring their safety in some ways, right, who's present at games or practices and those kinds of things. So you're absolutely right. And, you know, and to kind of put the problem in perspective, that you know, youth and high school athletics is kind of the base of the pyramid. That's where most people are participating, right? Um, it starts to get narrower and narrower as you come up into the college and professional context where there are plenty more resources available, even if they are quite varied. So, you know, the idea that there are millions of youth and high school athletes who are participating without any kind of medical um, care available is problematic, especially when we start to think about you know, what that means for kids with different kinds of backgrounds, yeah. right? Uh, it means very different things if you are going home and, you know, your parents have healthcare insurance and if you get an injury, you can go see your established primary care physician, but that is not the reality um, for many, many people. And it shouldn't be the case that, you know, a sport becomes more dangerous strictly because somebody has fewer resources uh, at home. That just does not seem right. That I, I couldn't agree with more. And that leads me right into my next question, which is <laughs> the whole idea of what has happened to healthcare coverage for families in the middle of COVID-19. And we've had massive job losses. Many, many people have their healthcare insurance through their, their, their parents' jobs, one or the other. And so, I'm not sure, quite frankly, how many how many uh, families are actually functioning with typical insurance versus uh, families that are that are buying insurance that's high deductible, has all kinds of copays and all kinds of uh, high premiums, and 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 these insurance policies do want to know if your if your kids are playing sports because that adds to the level of risk. What are your thoughts about this? I I, I sense this this is a market that's going to change maybe for the good in the next few years, but right now I, th I find it to be very tenuous. Yeah, I think there's, again, a lot going on here. Um, you know, my, my background in training is in health policy. And so I, I follow some of this closely, although I wouldn't say that I'm, um, you know, uh, just the, the perfect expert to answer this question. You know, I do think that there's a lot of movement here. Um, my understanding is that the Biden administration is reopening um, the, the healthcare marketplaces. So um, for folks, especially who have lost their insurance coverage due to job loss, they're able to engage with the um, 
options provided through the Affordable Care Act uh, healthcare exchanges. And I also think uh, that there's uh, supposed to be some kind of subsidies uh, available, especially for folks who've lost their jobs. So hopefully all of that plays plays into helping fix this problem a little bit. I'm, I mean, I think you're right that there's all kinds of underlying issues with having health insurance um, structured through the employer for cases like this, but also just more generally people switch jobs, they move and it causes this disruption um, that you know might be a, a little different were the system uh, to be a little bit more universal. Yeah, and in, in a, an economy that's dependent on, on at least one wage earner possibly having you know, multiple part-time jobs to put a, put a full-time salary on the plate, they may not have access to any health care at all. So trying to figure out how to buy health care when you're only working minimum wage jobs, that can be challenging. And that's challenging for kids who are, you know, from lower socioeconomic uh, classes. They may be great athletes, but they may put aside getting health care because they just can't afford it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think, you know, this kind of these kind of fundamental inequities and injustices are, you know, big, important societal problems that unfortunately have ramifications pretty much no matter where you look. It, but, you know, in the case here where we're talking about youth athletes, for sure, right? Your parents lose a job, lose healthcare coverage, you're going to have downstream consequences, you know, whether you realize them immediately or not. Um, you know, avoiding care for something that seems small can lead to bigger problems. Um, you know, just in general, the insecurities that come with uh, a lack of job, a lack of uh, uh, healthcare coverage, um, you know, probably also food insecurities, et cetera, you're right, you're exacerbating existing problems. So it really is, um, it is a shame. And I, and I do hope that we're able to kind of right the ship on the, the health insurance front. Yeah, I think it's important for senior leaders who are you know, overseeing athletics to, to ask questions, to make sure that all of your athletes are being treated equitably when it comes to health and safety, because at the very least we owe that to them. You know, one, one team shouldn't get all the benefits and the rest have to kind of pick up the pieces at the end. Another topic that I wanna to talk to you about, which is where you and I engaged originally was around uh, one of my passions, which is who owns or controls athlete biometric data? <laughs> And how can we manage that in an ethically compliant way? So I'd love to get your thoughts as somebody who has thought about this in a moral mm -hmm. ethical sense. What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the athlete context is definitely um, has its unique features and I'll come there in a second. But more broadly, uh, you know, we are all increasingly kind of engaging in this space where we have something in a bite, something of an idea of where our data is going or not going and who's using it or how they're using it. Um, but it's also a little bit of a black box, uh, right? So I think that there's a lot of challenges in that space broadly about, you know, what do we know or should we know about where our data is going, who has what permissions to use it. Um, and, I, and I think in general, people are uh, under-informed and and perhaps companies tend to uh, capitalize on that for their own gains and uh, reselling, reusing, um, profiting from these data um, that come typically from, you know, any of the, what's the saying? If, if you're using something for free, you're not the user, you're the product, <laughs> right? So your data uh, is in fact the ultimate goal. And so, I, you know, I, I think in general, there there is that level of uh, 
of issue that gets layered on top of this issue with um, athletes. And I think we had talked about this particularly in the context of college athletes. You know, and there I see issues being layered on top about, you know, the extent to which the school is capitalizing on their data, the extent to which the athlete feels um, that they are freely engaged in providing that inf biometric information, whether that's, um, you know, sensors or apps or anything like that, uh, or if they feel in any way pressured or coerced uh, to do that. And we've seen that in other contexts, right? We, we don't want athletes to feel like they need to do something just to maintain a spot, even if it is kind of against their um, wills otherwise. So I think that those two issues really come into play here. And I think it's exacerbated by the fact that these athletes are already, um, you know, if, if we think about men's basketball and men's football in particular, they're creating a lot of, um, you know, revenues for their institutions and they are, you know, ostensibly getting a free education, uh, room and board, et cetera, but uh, it's, it's disproportionate in effect uh, in relation to the amount of revenues that they're bringing in for their schools. So if they're yet again being, um, I'll use the word exploited for their data in addition to the la their labor, you know, that raises further kind of issues uh, in terms of their relationship to the school um, and those sorts of things. Yeah, I think it's a really important uh, question for, for, again, senior leaders to ask, you know, what is happening with all the sports technology? I mean, that's, that's the latest thing, you know, as, as far as what technology can I buy for my team that will give us an advantage? And you might get that technology really cheap, but there's a reason you got the, it's really cheap. The data is being sold and collected and the athletes aren't being given permission. I, I, my question would be as a researcher, do you feel this, this possibly invades the research space of granting consent, permission to have your data? Should schools actually go through IRB process potentially to gather this kind of data? Yeah, I mean, I think this kind of gets um, back to a pretty fundamental question here is, what is the purpose of the data that's being gathered? For what purpose is it being gathered, right? Is it um, to achieve some kind of competitive advantage ostensibly? Uh, is it uh, to monitor the athletes for some kind of health and safety related issue? Is it something else entirely, uh, right? And so if it's, if it's for research purposes, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen, um, I haven't personally conducted, but, you know, I know of plenty of researchers who engage with biometric uh, kind of data in the athletics context, and they always have to go through these processes with yeah. IRBs, et cetera. And I think that uh, as long as, you know, the, <clears throat> as long as the um, athletes are, you know, freely and uh, willingly participating um, in a, you know, informed way, and they've agreed, I, I don't know that there's necessarily inherently any issue with them engaging with these biometric data. But again, we have to come back to are they freely, willingly and informedly right. engaging, um, you know, and and how do we even assess that in some ways in the context that they're in, uh, especially if it's, a coach or somebody with kind of uh, power over their athletic future who's asking them to do this. So I, I just yeah. think that we have to be very mindful of the kind of power dynamics here. 
I want to kind of um, caveat a lot of the concerns that I put forward to say, I do think that there are some folks, especially in you know, collegiate sports medicine groups who are really trying to use these tools to help protect athletes. Um, you know, it's a very kind of new and evolving front, forefront, but folks are thinking about, you know, uh, how sleep affects athletes' health, well-being, ability to recover. People are trying to use biometric data to understand more about recovery from various orthopedic injuries, right? So there are ways in which it could be, um, you know, health value, safety enhancing for athletes, but there are also these other ways where it could be um, abused, misused, or kind of um, used in a way that is not necessarily in line with the athlete's um, best interests or well-being. And I think we have to be careful and think, um, think you know, through the reasons why we're collecting the data, uh, who ultimately will have access to and use of the data, and ensuring that the athletes do truly have a, a free kind of informed um, and willing process for participating in that data collection. Yeah, I, I really couldn't agree more. And I think it's important, again, for senior leaders to realize you can't have two different standards on, on each side of the campus. If you've got one standard for collecting data for faculty and another standard for athletes, then you've got to, you've got to, and I just think they have to have their attention brought to it so they can think through what they want to do. Christine, I'm so glad that we could have this really interesting conversation about all the ethical policy, and healthcare benefits that uh, uh, senior leaders need to be cognizant of. And we promise to keep our athletes safe when they play sports. So thank you for joining us. Thank you again for having me and for the opportunity to kind of share some thoughts. Absolutely. Good luck with the rest of your research. Thanks so much.